The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. A few months ago, I was listening to Sports Talk Radio on the ride home from work, and it was the baseball playoff time, and it was now moving on to the divisional series. And so there were four teams left um, in the playoffs. And I remember the commentator asking the, the listening audience the question, uh, who do you want to win the World Series? And this was here in Green Bay. It was a local sportscast. And people called in, and there were probably about 10 callers. And every single caller said, I don't care who wins the World Series as long as it's not St. Louis. And uh, what they were actually divided over was whether they wanted them to lose in the divisional series or to be humiliated uh, nationally at the World Series level. But all of them were against St. Louis. And with that said, um, I proudly announced that I am from St. Louis, Missouri, and I am a Cardinals fan, although I do root for the Brewers when they play anybody else. But I grew up in St. Louis, and I kind of had that same sentiment towards St. Louis. Like, I didn't like St. Louis. I kind of I kind of took it for granted. Um, I remember me and my high school friends, and this probably happens anywhere you come from, whether it be Green Bay, Milwaukee, New York, Chicago, or St. Louis. But I remember me and my friends in high school saying, St. Louis is such a boring city. You know, there is nothing to do here. Surely there has to be a better place. I can't wait to graduate and move out. And that's what we did. My friends and I, we graduated high school. We moved out. I moved to Columbia, Missouri where I attended school there, and then I moved to Wisconsin, back to Columbia, Missouri, back to Wisconsin. And then God had called me to seminary, and he called me to St. Louis. And so we came back to St. Louis to go to seminary, and we got a fresh perspective on St. Louis. St. Louis was a place that I took for granted so much growing up, but now that we were there, Trish and I, we saw all of the amazing things that were available There's, of course, the Gateway Arch. There's the riverfront. There's an amazing Fourth of July festival that goes on there. There's the Cardinals. There's the Rams. There's the Blues. There's there's a free zoo. There's a free science center. There's Grant's Farm, which is also free. There's a lot of cool free stuff there. There's the, 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 the City Museum. Who here has been to the City Museum in St. Louis? Is it the most unbelievable place on earth? I mean, it rivals Disney for a night. So it's, but I mean, St. Louis has a lot to offer. But growing up, I took all of that for granted. Some of you here have grown up in a Christian home. Or you have been a Christian for a very long time. And it has become normal to you. It has become maybe even a little bit boring to you. And you have thought to yourself, maybe there is something better out there. I know sometimes we are afraid to ask questions of God because we are afraid that we are being sacrilegious and God is going to strike us with lightning. But God always appreciates when we come to him with honest, humble questions. He doesn't like it when we come to him arrogantly, judgmentally, come to him with questions that we we have no plan on obeying or following, given his answer. But when we come to him humbly and honestly, He's glorified by those questions. And so today, I want to ask the question, is Jesus really the best there is? Or is there something better out there? Is Christianity really the best religion of all the religions? Or is there something better? 
You know, many of you don't have experiences with other religions, and maybe you see them on TV and you ask your question, maybe Buddhism is better. They seem so at peace and transcendent. Maybe Hinduism is better. Maybe atheism is better. I think for most of us, at least for myself, I'm not so tempted towards those extremes. What I'm more tempted towards is hedonism. Maybe sin would be more pleasing than Jesus. This is what was happening in the Colossian church. They accepted Jesus, they worshipped Jesus, but they added on to Jesus, thinking, you know what, Jesus is not enough. He is not a sufficient Savior. Well, today we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. If you would, please open your Bibles there. It's page 983 in the Red Bible, page 1456. And we're going to be starting a mini-series on a song, on a Probably a song from the early church. It's called the Christological Hymn of Colossians. And it lays out and it declares and praises God for the preeminence of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what that word means in a minute. But the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So I want to lay out for you where we're going the next three weeks. Today, we're going to look at Jesus is preeminent over the creation. Next week, we will see Jesus is preeminent over the church. And then the final week, we'll see Jesus is preeminent over our salvation. And so that's where we are headed over these next three weeks to see that Christ is a superior and a sufficient, sufficient Savior to anything else the world has to offer. So let's read together Colossians chapter 1. We'll read verse 15 through 17. And as always, keep your Bibles open after we're done reading. Colossians 1 verse 15. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you this morning as created beings, finite people. We come and sit before the foot of our creator. And God, we pray that you would reorient our life where it needs to be reoriented, God. Train, change our trajectory where it needs to be changed, God. Lord, show us why Jesus is the best. We pray this in his name. Amen. Christ is preeminent over creation. What does preeminent mean? Preeminent simply means supreme, utmost, highest, best. Jesus is number one. That's what preeminent means. And here, Paul is declaring the preeminence of Christ in creation. Now, there is sort of a pattern to his argument here, and so I want to lay it out for you because we're going to follow that pattern. In verse 15, Paul makes two extraordinary claims, which we'll we'll look at in detail in just a second. And then in verse 16 through 17, he shows his rationale of why he claims the things that he claims. 
And so let's start by looking at the claims in verse 15, and then we'll move on to his, to his justification for those claims. First is this, in verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you probably know in Genesis chapter 1, we learn that God created man in his own image. And so each and every one of us are image bearers of God. And so is Jesus an image bearer of God just as you and I are? That's the question. Well, what we see in creation, the reason why we bear the the image of God is because we are giving some of the attributes of God. Those are called the communicable attributes. That's what theologians call it, communicable attributes. And these are the attributes of God that are given to us. And so every person that you look at is born in the image of God, made in the image of God, because they carry some of his attributes, his communicable attributes, attributes such as logic, reason, love, the ability to rule over creation, We all have the inclination or understanding of justice and injustice, of mercy. We all have a moral compass, whether it's off or not is another question, but we all believe that there is a right and a wrong. All of these things are because we are made in the image of God, and we are given these attributes from God. These are his communicable attributes. Now, there are also the incommunicable attributes of God. These are attributes of God that we do not possess, right? Anyone here eternal? Anyone here live like before there was time? You know, anyone know all things, have power over all things? Uh, is every, anyone here, you know, everywhere at one time? No, because we're not God. We don't possess those attributes. And so we possess the communicable attributes of God, but not the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, as we flush this out, when we see Paul declare that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Paul is not only saying that Jesus possesses the communicable attributes of God, which all of us possess, but Jesus also possesses all the incommunicable attributes of God. Jesus doesn't just possess some of God's characteristics. He possesses all of God's characteristics. Jesus, this Nazarene carpenter is the image of God and that he is a carbon copy of God. He is God himself in the flesh. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think of God as this old, bitter, angry man, you know, sitting up in heaven, but Jesus as this warm and compassionate and loving guy. And what we learn throughout scripture is that if you want to know who God is and you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Colossians 2.9 says, for, Jesus, for in Jesus, the whole fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In John 14, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus responds saying, whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus is the exact representation of God himself. Ligon Duncan, in speaking of this amazing truth, quotes the Archbishop Michael Ramsey, who says this. He says, God is Christ-like and in him there is no unchrist likeness at all. 
God is Christ-like, and in him there is no unchrist-likeness at all. Ligon goes on and he says, you want to know what God the Father is like? Look at the Son. He is the perfect reflection of the Father. He is deity in the flesh. He is the representation and manifestation of God. He is the image of the invisible God, not less than him, but equal to him. And the visible representation of that spiritual reality, which transcends our sight and our senses. And so what Paul is claiming here is that Jesus is God himself. And it will become more apparent as we roll through the next few verses. Jesus is the image of God. He is the exact representation of God. That is Paul's first claim. The second claim is this. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, we have to start out with what this does not mean. What does it not mean that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? I think we look at this text and we would come to the conclusion maybe that what it means is that Jesus was born first before everything else. You know, it's interesting as you look at the history of the church, the first couple hundred years of the church, people didn't question Jesus' divinity. They questioned his humanity. They thought maybe his body was just an illusion. But as the church progressed, people started to question his divinity, not his humanity. And so around 300 AD, there was this thing that arose called the Arian heresy. Arius believed that there was a time when Jesus was not. That Jesus was not eternal. That Jesus was part of the created order. That he was the firstborn of all creation, according to this passage. As a matter of fact, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that today. And that's what they would argue is here from Colossians 2.15. The church fathers gathered together to discuss what Arius was saying. And they came back against that view vehemently. And we are probably familiar with the response. It comes out in the Nicene Creed. You can read along with me. Don't read out loud. But you're probably familiar with these words. In the Nicene Creed, it said, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, not made of one being with the father through him all things were made we're going to see a lot of that today in this colossians passage now you may ask the question why don't we believe that jesus was created why don't we believe that he was a firstborn in the sense that arius thought of it well there's many holes in the argumentation and the first is that if jesus was a created being then verse 16 and 17 couldn't be true. In verse 16, it says, For by him all things, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible. So if Jesus was a created being, then he couldn't have created all things. Jesus had to exist before the creation of anything in order for him to create all things in creation. And then as you look in verse 17, it says, for he is before all things, speaking probably to his preeminence, but also to the timing that Jesus existed before creation existed. And so back to this verse 15, how are we to take this word firstborn? What does Paul mean by it? Well, when 
When Paul says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, Paul is not talking about a birth order. Paul is not talking about the timing of the birth of a child. Paul is talking about the status of a child. The eldest son, the firstborn, was the one who would enjoy all the rights. The eldest son had special privileges and highest honors in the family. He was the preeminent child. He was the one that would rule the family when the father passed on. And when this term firstborn is used in the Old Testament, many times it's used to describe status and power and not birth order. Exodus 4.22, God says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Psalm 89.27, the Lord's talking about David, who I believe was the youngest of the children. I know he was wasn't the oldest. And he says, and I will make David the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. What God is communicating by these, by the, by what he's saying, by labeling someone as the firstborn is that they take a place of priority. They take a place of preeminence in the world. And this is what he's communicating in Colossians chapter one, that Jesus is preeminent in all of creation. So we see Paul's claims here. First, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? He doesn't possess some of God's attributes. He possesses all of them. And secondly, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He is preeminent in creation. And so now that we have heard the claims of Paul, let's again ask our questions. How do we know Jesus is the best there is? How do we know Jesus is preeminent over all of creation. What makes him preeminent over creation? How do we know Jesus is God? Let's keep moving on. Verse 16. For by him, being Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the creator of all creation. If you can touch it, if you can taste it, If you can smell it, if you can see it, Jesus made it. If you can't touch it, if you can't taste it, if you can't smell it, if you can't see it, Jesus made that too. (laughs) Jesus made all things in all of creation, both visible and invisible. In John 1, 3, we learn that all things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. You know, this is an amazing statement for the Apostle Paul to make. The Apostle Paul grew up in a Jewish family, and he knew that whoever was the creator of the universe was God himself. And so when he says Jesus created all things, he's claiming divinity for this lowly Nazarene carpenter. I know for some of you here, you don't believe that there is an intelligent designer. Uh, there, you know, I'm sure it's taught in multiple places, even in this school, that there is no intelligent designer, that there was just this big bang and everything fell into place. And while I would say it's true that to believe that there is a God, to believe that there is an intelligent designer, it does take faith. But to believe that there is not one takes much more faith. If you don't believe in an intelligent designer, you have much more faith than I do. Let me, let me illustrate that. What if I were to tell you that 
you know, where this school is, where you sit right now, there used to be a huge Home Depot, a, a massive Home Depot. And one day, a bomb exploded. And all of the things in Home Depot went flying into the air. And when they came back down, they landed just as you see them today. Perfect. All of the lights, all of the plumbing, all of the electrical, all of the brickwork, all of the mortar, it all landed perfectly. If you believe that, we would say you are a person of great faith, right? We'd probably call you something else too, but we would say you're a person of great faith. That you believe that it just exploded and it all came back together perfectly to form a school. And yet creation is so much more sophisticated, so much more complex than even this building. We look at this building and we say, you know what, there must have been a builder. There must have been a designer that put together these seats and sloped it upwards and put together this stage up here and the lights and the sound system and the light, all of that stuff. There must have been a designer. There must have been a creator. And yet creation is so much more sophisticated even than this school. You know, we could look at the planets. We could look at even the own cycles in our own earth. But I think one of the things that most amazes me about creation is ourselves. I mean, just take yourself, for example. You are a part of God's creation. If you are a grown adult, this is one of the most amazing statistics I've found. If you're a grown adult, there is approximately 100,000 miles of veins in your body. That includes the capillaries, the small little veins, but there is 100,000 miles of veins in your body. That's enough to circle the earth four times. And yet each one is perfectly placed to bring the nutrients to your body you need to exist. Do you understand now why to not believe in a creator, a designer, would take more faith than to believe in one? Because everything is so perfectly planned out in creation that it speaks of a creator. The complexity of a building shows that there is a builder the beauty of a painting shows that there is a painter. The majesty of creation shows that there is a creator. And Paul tells us today that that creator is Jesus. The passage goes on. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Now, Almost all the commentaries, at least the ones that I read, agree that what Paul is talking about here is not earthly rulers. He's talking about heavenly rulers. A lot of these terms were terms that Jews used in the day to refer to different ranking angels. And this was an important subject in the church of Colossae because they were encouraged to worship angels. Matter of fact, in Colossians 2.18, Paul says, Let no one disqualify you insisting on the worship of angels. And so in this passage, what Paul is telling them is do not worship the angels who, yes, they have some authority, they have some power, but worship Jesus who sits on the throne, who has ultimate dominion, who is the ruler and authority over all things. Don't substitute him, them, him for lesser creation. This is a lesson all of us could learn from. You may or may not worship angels but I know all of us struggle with worshiping the creation instead of worshiping the creator. This is called idolatry. 
We worship things all the time. Things that consume our mind, consume our hearts. Things that distract us from worshiping God and all of the good gifts he's given to us. You may ask, how do I know what I worship? Well, some of you, you just know. You know what you worship. You know what part of creation you worship that you struggle to put in its proper place. But if you don't know, let me ask you, what consumes your thoughts? What consumes your mind? You might be able to tell by looking at your web browser or by your calendar what consumes your heart and your mind. Or what is your biggest fear? What are you afraid of losing? What if you lost it would not only sadden you but would crush you? Those are parts of creation that we worship over the creator. Jesus Christ is the creator of all creation. And we must go to him and him alone for worship. So why does Paul say Jesus is the firstborn over all creation? First, Jesus is the creator of all creation. Secondly, Jesus is the sustainer of all creation. Some people would agree, yes, there is an intelligent designer. There is a God who created the universe, but like a great clockmaker, he made it, he set it into motion, and then he stepped back, and his hands are off of creation. Look what Paul says here in verse 17. And Jesus is before all things, talking about his preexistence to creation, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is not just the creator of all things. Jesus is the upholder of all things. This means that Jesus is as involved in creation today, this second, as we stand here, as he was in Genesis 1 verse 1. Jesus keeps all things in his creation moving forward in an orderly fashion and keeps it from descending into disorder and utter chaos. The law of entropy tells us that things don't naturally evolve into order, but they devolve into disorder. Take, for example, this morning. Chad was up here, and he said, let's clap, right? And he leads us, and we're all clapping on beat, and then he starts playing the piano, and then, and then by, you know, a few minutes later, it sounds like, right? People are like, why don't you clap? Are you against clapping? It's like, no, we just stink at it, so... You know, it becomes distracting in worship at times. But then what happens? Chad quits playing the piano, and he starts clapping. Order, right? Everyone starts clapping to the beat. Moms, you know this, right? Like, I can't tell you how many times I come home, and my wife says, I promised two hours ago this house was clean. You know? It's a law of entropy. Things go from order to disorder unless there is someone exercising authority over it. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If Jesus stopped working, even for one second, you and I would be out of existence. He maintains the created order. He maintains the orbit of the planets. He names the stars so he can say, hey, You, whatever your star name is, shine brighter. Move this way. Move that way, right? He sustains everything. This means that Jesus, even when he was a nursing baby, was sustaining his mother, was sustaining her milk production. 
Jesus, when he went to the cross, was sustaining the men that were nailing him to it. He was sustaining the people that were spitting on him, that were mocking him. Why did he sustain all these things? Because Jesus isn't only Lord of this creation, he is also Lord of the new creation. And he is making all things new. And he has started this new creation in the hearts of his people, in the lives of his people, and he will bring it to completion when he returns. And so Christ is preeminent over creation because he is the creator of creation, because he sustains creation, and finally, because Jesus is the purpose of all creation. Verse 16, second half says this. All things were created through him and for him. That, that little word for, that three-letter word is a monumentous word. <laughs> All things were created through him and for him or unto him or to him or towards him. Do you want to know the purpose of your life? It's in that short phrase. For him. There it is. Are you trying to solve the mystery of life? The mystery of the world, the mystery of creation, the purpose of your life? For him. That is the purpose of your life. Jesus created all creation. He sustains all creation for his glory, for his pleasure, for his enjoyment, for his delight. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian who was the prime minister of the Netherlands, a hundred or so years ago, was giving a speech before a university audience in Amsterdam, arguing that scholarship is an important Christian discipline, since scholarship deals with God's world, right? The world belongs to God. It has to be done in such a way that is honoring to Christ. And then Kuyper ended his speech with probably his most famous statement ever. He says this, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine. This belongs to me. All of creation belongs to Jesus. All of creation is for Jesus. And this means that all of creation will glorify Jesus. You know, whether you are here today and you are a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you love God or hate God, you will glorify him. You do not have a choice in the matter. We're told that in the end, all of us will give glory to Christ. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, meaning hell. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow and give him the worship and praise he deserves. And so the question isn't if you will give glory to God or not. The question is when. Do you give him glory now? Or will you give it to him later? For centuries, people believed that the sun revolved around the earth. They even had proof of it, right? Sun rises in the east, sets in the west. It's smaller than the, than the earth. The sun must revolve around the earth. Scientists laughed at 
Nicholas Copernicus, when he suggested that the earth revolved around the sun. It had never occurred to them that they might have been seeing things from the wrong perspective. Decades later, Galileo Galilei adopted Copernicus's theory that the sun was the center of our solar system. Because of it, he was persecuted and put in house arrest for the rest of his life. People were so angry because they could not stand being the center of the universe. Centuries later, Jean Piaget, a Swiss development psychologist, psychologist and philosopher, was studying children, and he said, each child must experience his or her own Copernican revolution. They must learn that they are not the center of their world. God calls all of us to experience our Copernican revolution, where we discover that we indeed are not the center of the universe, but Jesus is the center of the universe. The purpose of creation is all for Jesus. And so let me ask you, is Jesus prominent in your life, or is he preeminent in your life? Is Jesus a prominent figure? He is a big part of your life over here, but he doesn't have word and say over all things in your life. Or is he preeminent? Is everything in your life directed towards him? If everything is for Jesus, then it means the reason we come to church is for Jesus. The reason we go to work is for Jesus. The reason we play sports is for Jesus. The reason we are married is for Jesus. The reason why we are single is for Jesus. The reason we study to get good grades is for Jesus. Everything we do is for Jesus because he is the creator. He's the creator of all things. He sustains all things and all things are for him. And this is how we give glory to him. Jesus is not just to be prominent in our life, but he is to be preeminent in our life that all things are directed in worship and praise to him. And so where in your life do you need to reorient? Where in your life do you need to make Christ preeminent? Is it in your finances? In your calendar? In your Saturday night, nightlife? Christ calls us to make him preeminent in our lives because he is preeminent in creation. Let me end with this. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Corrie Ten Boom. She was a woman who hid Jews during Nazi Germany, and she, um, she was arrested and put in a concentration camp. Uh, it was humiliating. She was stripped naked uh, while, while she passed by uh, soldiers. Um, her sister died in the concentration camp. And one of the quotes that she said was this. She said, you may never know That Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You may never know that Jesus is all you need unless Jesus is all you have. We've asked the question earlier, is Jesus it? Is Jesus the best this world has to offer? You may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Do you see what happened? The glory, the beauty, the majesty of creation was stripped away from her. And yet she was able to say, Jesus is all I need and Jesus is all I have. In Romans chapter 1, it says this. You can read along with the screen. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes 
namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Jesus has done everything in creation to show you the majesty and the glory of God that you might surrender all of your life and make him preeminent in your life. That all of your life would be, would be used to serve him and to love him. And so let me ask you this question. What are you going to do with Jesus? Paul makes some extraordinary claims here. That Jesus is God in the flesh. That Jesus is preeminent over creation. That he is the creator of creation. The sustainer of creation. And the goal and the purpose of creation. What will you do with this Jesus? Either we have to write him off as a lunatic or we have to worship him as the God and creator of the entire universe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, creator of the universe. We confess, God, that we often see the beauty of your creation and yet fail to follow its leading to the creator. We worship creation instead of you, the creator, and it is foolish. They are just good gifts from your hand that are a shadow of your goodness. Let us go straight to the source, God. Let us go to our Savior. Let us go to our Christ. Let us go to our creator, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.